Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we're happy to welcome Jorge Velasco to the show. He's a Young Voices contributor. And Jorge, I'm going to ask you if you would fill in just a few of the gaps about to who you are and what you do. It sounds like you have a lot on your plate. <laughs> no, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Brian. Um, probably born and raised in San Antonio, Texas. I uh, moved up to Virginia not too long ago. And I am at George Mason University in Fairfax. And I'm looking at a wonderful article that you've written about uh, it's past time to end the campus COVID craze. Now, we've been watching for the last uh, well, the last few weeks, especially. It seems like there's been this 180 turn, uh, you know, in a lot of the mask mandates and vaccine passport mandates and so forth. But it sure appears like the, the, the COVID precautions are ever in fashion on college campuses. What does it look like? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, ever since COVID began, uh, restrictions like mask mandates, social distancing, just general stay at home directives uh, have really forced students to hit the brakes on uh, the majority of their social life. Um, At the time, you know, when the pandemic began in March of 2020 and so forth, uh, it was somewhat reasonable. Um, Now, almost two years after the pandemic began, kind of you see kind of the same measures are still in place. um, And I would say even some more. So, for example, at the beginning of the fall semester, uh, students were required for uh, the vaccine mandate to receive um, their vaccine, at least for the COVID jab um, at their respective universities. And so now universities with almost universal vaccination rates uh, continue to have these draconian protocols in place. And what I mean by that is that, you know, communities, especially low risk communities like colleges, and universities, uh, you're seeing communities that have over 95 percent of their community and kind of the area surrounding them vaccinated. And so you're wondering why are these protocols still in place? Right. There wasn't a life saving vaccine in place before then. Yeah. And as you as you point out in your article, it's instead of easing the restrictions, if anything, they seem like they're they're The rules are getting even more intrusive. Um, any reasons for why that might be happening? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, if you look at Johns Hopkins University, for example, you know, which is a renowned name in academia all around, um, it added even more severe measures for the spring semester instead of kind of easing off of them for the most part. And so, you know, for example, they introduced a booster mandate. Um, Students now have to test twice in a week. Uh, Dining halls continue to be closed. Students have to double mask or at least use a KN95, Um, all for an ultra-low risk community with a 99 vaccination rate, 99% uh, vaccination rate, all for a price of $75,000 a year. And so when you look at it uh, on on the grand scheme of things, it's truly just an attempt to introduce some sort of police state with the overhyped Omicron variant, for example, that rarely affects a community like Johns Hopkins University and other colleges like them. Now, As you point out in your article, even if a person can say, look, I've had COVID, I've completely recovered from it, natural immunity somehow never seems to enter into the question. Yeah. uh, You know, some institutions are starting to acknowledge natural immunity. So George Mason, I'll take, for example, if you did test positive over the winter break when students were gone at home or somewhere else, you are exempt from testing for 90 days or so. And so after that, you know, you start to test in mid-April, mid to late April, and that's when, you know, uh, midterms, the finals start hitting, you know, everything starts to 
ease off for the end of the year. But universities and institutions of higher education are still lacking widespread acknowledgement for natural immunity. And so I'll take Johns Hopkins University again for an example. There is a fully vaccinated student who has remained anonymous because he's fearing that you know, he can face some retribution from the university um, because he tested positive twice and as recently as December of, of 2021, right before the winter break. Um, he suffered severe adverse effects to his second dose of the vaccine, um, and he has not received a booster exemption. Uh, the reason being is that the university says the student has not been allowed to take classes in person solely because he has not gotten a booster, even though he has natural immunity, he's fully vaccinated, and even though he suffered severe adverse effects from his second dose, with a doctor's note, no exemption has been given. It's, I, I can't even imagine. Now, where, where you are attending university, is, is common sense beginning to return? Are you starting to are you seeing a return to normalcy or uh, do they still want to hang on to these rules as long as possible, too? Just a little bit. It's, it's a little bit of both. Um, George Mason, uh, in lieu of the recent attorney general of Virginia's um, first legal opinion, he said that uh, a university, at least a public university in Virginia, cannot determine or implement a mandate for the COVID-19 vaccine as a proof of enrollment or as a requirement for enrollment. And so starting March 4th, the COVID vaccine will not be required at Mason, as well as the mask mandate will be ending. Um, This is all under the threshold, assuming that we are under a 4% positivity rate, which looks likely because at the moment we are a little less than under 1.5%. And the grand scheme of things, you're having at least 10,000 students test per week, and some unvaccinated have to test twice per week, which is in and of itself ridiculous. But for the most part, universities in Virginia like George Mason, Virginia Tech, UVA, the big hitters, right, are starting to, to take precedent in what, you know, we actually want to do policy-wise in terms of mass mandates, uh, vaccine mandates, and COVID protocols in general. What's the feeling like among the student body? I mean, I, I'm sure there, there's some who, you know, this this is for my protection. They're going to go along with it no matter what is asked. Are, are there people who are, are tiring of this and starting to chafe a little bit at that, that leash around their neck? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the general feeling, the general consensus is that students are getting very tired. They're getting very frustrated of having to just adhere to these COVID protocols that have been going on for now the better of two years. Um, There's no real definitive point anymore for mask mandates. Take, for example, um, think about it. What is the difference between eating and drinking maskless in a dining hall or maskless in your dorm with your friends, but you have to mask up in the gym and for class? There is no, there's no common ground whatsoever. And it's, it's, pretty unbelievable that we've gotten to this point that the universities, the institutions of higher education have been following our so-called public health experts, quote unquote, um, which continue to negate for the most part, the hard data just for the name, you know, of following the science. It's, it's really gotten unbelievable to a point where you really can't think logically and say this makes sense anymore. Two things you point out in your article, number one, you've, and you've mentioned this, um, 
the age of most people, the average age of a college student is not exactly in one of the high risk categories. This is this is one of the least affected demographics in term in terms of, um, you know, even if they get covid, it's usually a very mild thing. But the second thing and I was curious what you're hearing when when they mandate you've got to have fully vaccinated status, you've got to have boosters and so forth. We're starting to hear a lot more about cases of myocarditis, especially like athletes and stuff collapsing on the field. Is there some hesitancy on the part of those those student age folks to get the boosters because they're hearing about these things? There is absolutely um, a lot of hesitancy. I'll take myself for granted. Um, I did not receive the booster, even though there was a booster mandate implemented at the time at George Mason before legal challenges brought it down. And the president said, we're not going to do it anymore. Um, There are definitely some risks found in multiple studies that show a, an increase uh, of, of vaccine-induced myocarditis, especially highlighted for men under 30 after their second dose, and it's even higher after their booster. So take data from the United Kingdom, for example. Um, one study puts booster efficacy as low as 35% just after 10 weeks. So that is two and a half months. That is not even, that, that's barely halfway through one college semester. And so you put this on a on a widespread basis. Um, and I'll take another study, for example, just 30 percent, 37 percent efficacy against Omicron only after seven days, which is well below the benchmark of the FDA's 50 percent benchmark for a vaccine. Any vaccine take it, uh, you know, covid, HIV, et cetera. And so you have government agencies like the CDC and FDA that have been playing the guessing game um, ever since the rollout of the vaccine and the booster, which has just been founded solely on unjustified and illogical booster mandates like George Mason had. And now that Johns Hopkins has um, solely in our in our universities. And so when you mentioned myocarditis for, you know, I'll take myself again, um, I have an irregular heartbeat. And so I'm fully vaccinated. But that was in March of 2021, almost, you know, three to four months after vaccine was widespread available. And so you look at Moderna, for example, and there's a lot of data from Canada suggesting an even higher rate of myocarditis from the second shot compared to Pfizer's and J&J's. And so it's it's producing a very potential long-lasting risk for young men. Um, and it's not even young men just in a specific subgroup. It could be teenagers like myself up until juniors and seniors in college. It's, it's very worrying. Well, Jorge, I appreciate the work that you're doing. I appreciate your article that you've written. Let's uh, let's tell our audience, where can they find your writings? I'm on Twitter at Velasco V as in Victor, uh, A, Jorge, J-O-R-G-E, and on Instagram at Jorge Velasco, two underscores. Okay, great visiting with you. Keep up the good work. I hope we talk again soon. Thanks very much. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're happy to welcome Grace Bedalek. She is our latest contributor to Young Voices. She's also a writer, performer, and administrator living in New York City. Grace, happy to have you on the show. How are you today? Hi, Brian. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. A lot of folks are meeting you for the first time. Sure. So I am super excited to be a part of Young Voices this year. 
Um, I've actually been a professional actress in New York City for about the past three years, and I am a proud graduate of the musical theater program at the University of Michigan. Very nice. Has it been an interesting couple of years with all of the uh, COVID shutdowns and so forth? Have you been able to to practice the craft? (laughs) You know, um, interesting is one way to put it. Uh, It has been a really interesting year where I've seen a lot of my actor friends um, make really admirable pivots um, and find other passions that they weren't able to pursue when they were full time living, working as actors in New York City. Um, And so it's not only been a, a complicated time and a really painful time, but it's also been a very beautiful time. I like your attitude, and, and kudos to you for, for making the most of it. I'm looking at an article you've written for the Washington Examiner about uh, big government's tech war on the little guy. And there's a conclusion you make at the very – there's actually – there's an observation you make at the very beginning of this article. The American Innovation and Choice Online Act is aptly named – and that the proposed legislation would hamper innovation in small businesses and freedom of choice for consumers. This is true of so many government acts. Whatever the name says, right. just kind of flip it on its head, and that's probably what it's going to do. What's the reasoning behind this particular act? Right. So, uh, unfortunately, as you said, it, what is framed as pro-consumer and small business in theory is actually oftentimes anti-consumer and small business in practice. I think the intentions behind this bill were good, right? I think this particular bill was designed to prevent big tech firms like Google and Amazon from not only preferencing their own products and services, but also from abusing platform interoperability requirements. Um, So it was really written in the name of antitrust. Okay, and... I'm just going to ask you for for the sake of people like me who don't use the word antitrust very often. When we're talking antitrust actions, what what is that supposed to accomplish? Is this breaking up monopolies? Is this uh, you know keeping big business you know on its leash, so to speak? Yes, precisely. That's exactly what it's designed to do. Um, unfortunately, uh, there are lots of small businesses behind that. Um, that uh, will be hurt much more than these big tech conglomerates will be. So who, who are the prime forces in, in pushing this, this particular act? Sometimes you can tell a little bit about a piece of legislation by, you know, who's, who's behind it. Sure, absolutely. So this bill actually has a really interesting uh, set of supporters. Uh, this bipartisan representation. So you've got 11 co-sponsors on this bill from Senators Amy Klobuchar and Cory Booker, all the way over to the other side of the aisle, um, to Senators Chuck Grassley and Lindsey Graham. Um, So you've got quite a wide array of bipartisan support, which often means that the bill is actually a little bit troublesome uh, for people on the ground. Now, when when you warn that uh, this is not going to do what what the people who are pushing this bill intend for it to do. One of the things that that I think you mentioned is that it's being sold. And look, this is to protect the little guy. Tell me how going after the big guy um, also puts the little guy in harm's way. Right. A hundred percent. So if passed, this bill would give the Federal Trade Commission um, and U.S. Attorney General and state attorneys general new powers to bring Uh, antitrust enforcement actions against major online platforms that we had just talked about. Um, So the bill states that the covered platforms cannot, quote unquote, unfairly preference their own products or services or lines of business over those of another business user 
on a covered platform in a manner that would materially harm competition. Unfortunately, like I said, there are small businesses behind these uh, behind this legislation and behind these tech giants that would take the majority of the hit. So I was fortunate enough to speak with uh, a woman named Carrie Mellon, who is the founder and the co-owner of a company called Easy Hold. So she had a 35-year career in costume design, um, and then she saw this niche and started to create these grip aids that help people age gracefully and remain active into old age or uh, help specifically people within the within the disability community. Um, so her simple silicone device has become a staple in therapy centers across the country. Um, and Mellon, along with two other small business owners, they recently appeared in front of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee and they penned a letter of protest against this bill, which you can see on Amazon's website. And she's most concerned about a couple of things. So, as we said earlier, uh, the bill states that covered platforms cannot, quote unquote, unfairly preference their own products. Um, but because Prime is Amazon's own service, this would prevent it from displaying the Prime badge on products from companies big and small. Um, and as Mellon put it very simply, she said that this is actually really deadly for small businesses, right. um, given that it provides small businesses with reputability um, that they wouldn't otherwise have. Um, and another of her concerns stems from a provision that prohibits Amazon from uh, financing expedited shipping through fulfillment by Amazon's merchant fees. And this for small businesses would make two day shipping nearly impossible. Um, it really undoes the linchpin between FBA, which is fulfillment by Amazon, and Prime. Um, so this this linchpin allows small businesses the available the avail availability to compete with companies that have millions of units available at places such as Walmart and Target. Let's take a moment here and talk about the Open App Markets Act. You warned that this is another very concerning uh, piece of legislation. Yes. So this is more broadly concerning for us um, on a wider scale. It presents kind of a new slew of cybersecurity problems for little guys, as I, as I call them in the article, and also for just day-to-day -day users of interfaces. So this bill would stop a dominant platform from, quote-unquote, preventing another business's product or service from interoperating. Um, and so what this means is that sideloading mandates would force closed ecosystems, uh, which we experience every day. So it's like Apple's iOS system okay. um, to allow access to third party apps in their stores. Um, and while politicians say that this build in a backdoor for competition, again, what we think is pro uh, competition and, and small business in practice is actually not. Uh, it allows for applications from open ecosystems to bypass these like strict technical and security requirements that have been set by Apple. Um, so we may see a, a surge in viruses and cyber uh, cyber attacks that had essentially all been eradicated by Apple. Can we rightly say that it's competition if you know there's there's regulatory or government interference at some level? You know, I don't think that we can. <laughs>
So like being, it's like being a little bit pregnant. You know, look, you are or you aren't. Either there's competition <laughs> or there isn't. Um, what yes. what do you see as far as the receptiveness of members of Congress in in acting on these these acts? I is it a receptive atmosphere or are they going to take some convincing? You know, it seems to be a, a receptive atmosphere. Uh, on January twentieth, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted sixteen six to advance this bill. Um, and we can expect a vote on it within the full Senate in the coming months. So we're really, um, really kind of sounding the alarm um, over at Young Voices about the ways that this could could negatively impact small business. Yeah, it's I know people perceive, you know, problems and think, well, you know, there's got to be a good government solution. And I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, Grace, but is this something that could be worked out? between the parties without getting government involved? Because it seems like once government gets involved, it, it gets politicized and then it's just a power struggle. Right. It does. It does. You know, uh, Carrie actually talked about that in our interview as well, saying she's not 100 percent sure that this something like this bill isn't needed. Um it, right, because we have seen uh, a lot of overreach by these big tech companies uh, over the past uh, over the past few years, really. Um, but unfortunately, the way that this bill is laid out is not conducive to the health of small business. Okay, we are unfortunately coming up on the end of the segment. Uh, we're talking with Grace Bedalek. She is a Young Voices contributor. She is also a writer, performer, and administrator living in New York City. Grace, where can people access your writings? Sure, absolutely. So if you visit gracedailybedalek.com, so that's D-A-L-E-Y-B-Y-D-A-L-E-K, um, I write about anything from tech to arts and culture uh, to religious freedoms, and I'll post all of my articles there. Okay. Grace, it's wonderful to meet you. Thank you so much for being a guest on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Thank you, Brian. forward with young voices very happy to welcome georgia gilholy back to the show and georgia you have been on the the moving forward program before for folks who are meeting you for the first time tell us just a little bit about yourself ah so uh yeah great to be here um so i work as a journalist i'm a news reporter for a website called politics.co.uk in the in the uk funnily enough uh and i'm also a columnist for the website conservative home uh and that is uh, i think we're going to be discussing one of my columns uh from uh, a few weeks ago today yeah I'm, I'm looking at this headline here imagine the effect on a child who's told that he's not racially innocent and here in in the united states there's a lot of uh, concern over um critical race theory and, and other woke ideology that's that's coming into the curriculum. I was a little bit surprised to hear that uh, that that apparently is is a problem in the UK as well. <laughs> um, yeah, if you knew the UK as well as I do, um, you probably wouldn't be surprised. Um, so it's definitely not as bad as some of the stuff I've heard coming out of like California, New York, DC in the US, thankfully. Um, however, these kind of things do happen. And essentially, my column is exploring uh, a teaching training plan 
in Brighton, which is a city in the south of England. It's being implemented by the local council. Um, teen, uh, teachers are being trained along these lines. And essentially, well, first of all, they won't uh, release the full plans, but the plans that the Daily Telegraph, the newspaper in the UK, got hold of um, refer to some concerning information. And so some of that information um, reveals that teachers are being told to, as you say in the headline, tell children, uh, white children or, um, yeah, white children that they're not racially innocent, quote unquote. Um, And this is part of a so-called racial literacy training. The thing is, this has actually been going on since last summer. And according to the information I have, 300 teachers have already undertaken it. So, you know, think about the classes that are already going through this uh, this damaging stuff, unfortunately. Now, I, I don't want to sound like a doubter here, but this sure sounds a lot like a solution looking for a problem. I mean, what what is what exactly is is the uh, anti-racist education plan supposed to accomplish? Is this to promote correct attitudes? Is it to right an existing wrong? What what do the people who are promoting it say? Yeah, so obviously it's hard to sort of make windows into people's souls, obviously, and I think. I guess we should try and assume they're not acting in bad faith, though probably some of them are because some of the stuff is just, it's toxic in my opinion. Um, So I suppose the idea they would say, you know, is that it's trying to correct historical prejudice and uh, combat racist bullying in school, which of course is an issue. Um, You know, bullying is an issue, racist bullying is an issue in schools. Um, In fact, some stats from last year that I mentioned in the article, um, they suggest that racist bullying is actually on the up in certain schools in the UK, unfortunately. However, you're not going to solve that by essentially pinning the blame for those kind of things on one group of children, white children. Um, It's bizarre that you think that would work, especially, you know, with children in general, especially very young children in primary school. Um, Oh, so that's elementary school for you. Um, (laughs) They're not going to understand the nuances of, uh, of historical racism or discrimination or critical race theory. And it's damaging to suggest that they should, because those kind of things are not the way to deal with this. You deal with um, these kind of discriminatory incidents on a case-by-case basis. Obviously, it's unacceptable to have that in schools, but essentially sort of um, turning it around and actually being racist and uh, imposing racist stereotyping on white students, accusing them of being uniquely bad, is actually just going to cause more bullying. And probably it could even cause more bullying in the other direction as well to non-white students if these students are sort of told that, Um, you know, if let's say they're being told that they're uniquely to blame for something uh, that's happened to another student, they may, you know, be resentful because obviously they're children, they don't understand the nuances of it. So it could essentially cause more issues in both directions, which is, it's just, you know, a nightmare. Yeah, I look, I want to read good intentions into what people are doing too. But um, if if this is supposed to address improper attitudes or or harmful notions about race, it seems very odd that, uh, well, the solution is we have to pick this group based on their skin color and tell them you're the problem. That just seems so inconsistent with with, uh, you know, truly, you know, trying to to, mm-hmm. to find more common ground as opposed to divide people further. Yeah, precisely. And um, for example, in the UK right now, especially in London, um, we're seeing a huge rise in violent anti-Semitic incidents against Jewish communities. And obviously the vast majority um, of Jewish people, you know, they will have Middle Eastern ancestry, but they'll quote unquote be white passing. That's what the woke people like to call it. So let's say if you're not visibly Jewish, if you, you don't wear certain religious garments, people might not immediately think, oh, you're Jewish. But um, the ultra-Orthodox communities, they are usually visibly so because they have those certain um 
those certain religious garments or certain um, headwear that they wear to ad- identify them as Jewish. Um, so they're more victim victim to attack. However, a lot of them have quote unquote white skin, even though I think the whole sort of concept of whiteness is, is overused. And I don't think that, um, I don't think that Jewish communities should be characterized as white. Um, a lot of woke people do actually view them as that. So what's this, you know, imagine if this is implemented in a Jewish school, you tell um, these Jewish people who are witnessing a rise in, in horrific incidents against their own community. Oh, well, actually, you know, you're to blame because technically you're white or some people think that you're white. So you can't win really. Um, and this kind of, it, it's sort of just a really obtuse thing to try and force into, um, you know, racial identity and ethnic prejudice, a very complicated issue. And you need to be approaching it with common sense to try and think, okay, how can we actually um, reduce actual instances of racism and harm rather than kind of just trying to shoehorn your own political beliefs into it, which don't necessarily line up with the reality of who is actually the victim in certain situations. I was surprised to see in your article that uh, among some of the things that, that this curriculum introduces is the idea that Christianity is linked to the slave trade. And, and you offer some pretty good perspective on, <laughs> on why uh, that's, that's not a, a you know, a great conclusion to arrive at. Yeah. So if you think about the way that that most people are aware of history nowadays in the UK, probably in the US too, it kind of makes sense that mo- the average person would associate Christianity with slavery because they just think about slavery. When they think about slavery, they think about the European colonial empires, right? However, slavery has been a consistent feature, unfortunately, because it's one of you know the most evil crimes that humanity has participated in. It's been a feature of civilizations throughout the entirety of human history. It's it's a prominent feature of modern uh, modern society. And there's 40 million people currently, you know, modern day slavery across the world. And actually, even though most of those people aren't in Western countries, they're making, they're manufacturing the goods, they're, you know, um, sewing the fabrics, whatever, for our clothes, for uh, things that we buy, consumer products. So they're part, they're part of the cycle that we're involved with, unfortunately. So it's almost as if we like to imagine that we're better than the past, when in many cases we're not. And also... We link it specifically to European, which is obviously Christian history, which is simply not the case. And if you look, if you look at the past few hundred years when slavery has been abolished in a lot of places, it's been down to, um, you know, people like William Wilberforce, um, the Earl of Shaftesbury in the 19th century, the Clapham sect, a lot of evangelicals actually strongly campaigning, sometimes you know, sacrificing their own lives, um, their own reputations to campaign for the rights of slaves to not be slaves. Um, so it's just a real, it's a real, um, it's totally historically inaccurate. That's what I'm try- I was trying to get at. It makes it makes more sense why C.S. Lewis encouraged people read old books so that you can break <laughs> out of that uh, tendency to engage in chronological snobbery and think, well, <laughs> we have all the answers. We know all. We know mm-hmm. right from wrong. Um, it turns out, you know, every. Every generation has its blind spots, including us. And I, I think the day is going to come when we're going to look at, uh, at much of the woke curricula and woke ideology and ask, what, what were we thinking in allowing this to, to move forward? From, from a governmental standpoint, where do uh, authorities, where you know, either school authorities or even you know, civic authorities come down on, on this issue? Are, are they falling all over themselves to show how woke they are or are they, they standing up and calling this out as you know, unnecessary or, or divisive? It's pretty interesting that you ask that question because I think there's, there are a lot of conflicting approaches in the British government right now. There are departments who, for example, are hiring you know, diversity officers, that kind of thing. Even the army has diversity officers. 
um, and also promoting, in some cases, quote unquote, woke ideology. However, you then have, for example, um, the Equalities Minister, Kemi Badenoch. Um, she mentioned last year that teaching these kind of things in schools, I believe she either said it is illegal or it should be legal. I'm pretty sure she actually said it, should, it is illegal already because it's sort of, you know, uh, pushing a political agenda down children's throats, which is obviously not, um, it's not acceptable in public schools. Um, and uh, the education secretary um, has now said that he will be pursuing legal action, I believe, against uh, local authorities that are pushing this kind of stuff. The problem is, realistically, will will they actually take firm action? I think possibly not. Because um, like I say, this kind of stuff is embedded in the civil service, is embedded in many government departments and many people who are actually, you know, probably in the cabinet. So ministers in the government, uh, many MPs. So while I think that they sort of, you know, they, they make a fuss sometimes and say, oh, this shouldn't be happening. It's illegal. Well, if it's illegal, this has actually been happening for a while in a lot of places. So I think they would have done something already if they really did think that it needs to be rooted out i think it's just sort of they know that voters don't like this stuff so so they'll go they'll sound off for a while about oh there's terrible uh wokery in schools we need to get it out but often they don't actually take action unfortunately again we've been talking with georgia l gilholy georgia great to catch up with you where can people find your work um Ooh, so my Twitter is at LLGGeorgia, so G-E-O-R-G-I-A. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our final segment of today's show. Happy to welcome uh, Young Voices contributor Augustin Forzani, joining us now from uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina. Augustin, very nice to meet you. Hi, Brian. Thank you for having me. For those who are just getting to meet you for the first time as a Young Voices contributor, uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, I am a a master in economics from George Mason University. I finished my master um, in 2021. Um, I I am also a former Mercatus Fellow, Mercatus Center uh, Fellow. And uh, right now I am working uh, at my father's company. Um, we have an agribusiness company in Argentina. And also I am a Young Voices contributor. Um, like I, I, I keep the, the academy near uh, just because I like it. Um, but yeah, just dividing my, my time between working and academics. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show. We have a very timely topic to discuss, uh, and that is the political implications of price controls. Right now, I think people, particularly in America, but this may be true around the world, people are starting to get an applied lesson in what happens when inflation kicks in. As every time I go to the grocery store, for instance, I notice the prices of items are steadily moving higher. And this is tempting. When, when such things happen, politicians often will say, well, I'll step up here and I'll fix this. And, and they, they come forward with the proposition of price controls. What exactly does it mean when a politician says, well, we'll implement price controls, you know, because the prices are going up? What, what are they suggesting they're going to do? Well, yeah, um, yeah. I I have seen that in America, given the the high inflation by U.S. standards, you know, um, there have been um, a couple of scholars, you know, suggesting um, 
kind of radical ideas because it's it's a it's a problem in America. I I am seeing that it's a, it's a concern. Um, so uh, hopefully, I, what I see in America is that the uh, most of the economists are are uh, suggesting like uh, normal ideas that that uh, you can. I mean, I think that the U.S. is going to have a, a, a transitionary inflation, high inflation for a while, uh, and the Federal, Federal Reserve is going to do something in the next year or two. Um, but yeah, you have some some scholars suggesting this kind of radical ideas, and you have to be aware that um, it's not only that price controls have economic problems, because... I, I have also seen that the, the public in, in, in the U.S. are aware of the economic problems of, of price controls. You know, shortages, inefficiencies, um, you will have unintended consequences. Um, but you also have political consequences, uh, political tensions that you create um, that are also com like complex. You have to, like, the people have, uh, have to understand them and they they might uh, the, the 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 problem that i see with them is that they they will erode the social relationships between people and that 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 it's it's um it's, it's really not good for society and it could be complicated to stop you do a marvelous job in this article by the way of illustrating some of the unintended consequences that come along with price controls and i like that you give the, a, an example here i love to barbecue so um i i'm always looking for you know a good deal on some a nice cut of beef to throw on my smoker and if if they put a price cap on meat though the art the price is artificially lower People tend to to buy more of it. The demand increases because it's cheap, and there are there are some political processes that you describe that happen when when these price controls are implemented as too. Can you walk us through uh, transfer dynamics, self fulfilling thesis, and gradual acceptance thesis, and and what those things look like? Yeah, so I, I describe these three uh, political processes that that uh, price controls also like produce. Um, the first one is the transfer dynamics. When when you have um, a specific privilege that, that that the government grants to a certain part of the population, you are indirectly harming another part of the population. If the government also wants to grant a privilege to the other part of the population, they are going to harm another one and another one, and it it keeps growing. And you are just transferring money around society and creating winners and losers all, all the time and you are eroding the relations the social relationship between them uh, you know like ranchers for example are going to suffer the price cut cup of meat and they are going to complain about that the second process which is related to the first one the self-fulfilling thesis um it's it's the the ranchers which are going to uh, complain about the about the price cap they are going to have actually a, a, like a real, uh, just they, 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 their claim is going to be justified because it's not, it's not like a space, space goal that they are going to create uh, uh, out of the blue. They, they are going to have a real harm that they, they are going to suffer because of the price cap. So the, the government is going to be forced to act to solve the problem. Um, and then also the gradual acceptance thesis 
Um, this is the the reduction uh, of the the aversion to interventions uh, in in the society. So every uh, new intervention that the government implements in the, the market uh, is going to reduce the aversion of the of the public because right. the intervention is going to create a new unintended consequence. The people are going to uh, concerned about about that problem. They are going to ask for a solution. The the government is going to try to solve that problem, and interventions are going to are going to keep piling up, and you're going to end up with lots of intervention. I talk about, like, I mean, I have certain experience on, on, on that, particularly in Argentina, we have lot, I mean, lots of intervention in the market. We are quite aware of that here. Um, but yeah, we, we, we keep intervening, and, and it's, it's complicated to unwind when, when, you, when you start. Yep, I, I, you make a, a perfect case for this. Where, you know, the more that we allow government to step in and, and help us, you know, help us out, the more yeah. people start to expect it. And and then should the time ever come where people say, you know what, this really isn't working so well. You have such a regulatory mess that it's very difficult to dismantle that apparatus once it just has been built on and built on over time. Yes, because the problem is that when you have lots of intervention. The, the opposite problem, uh, the deregulation uh, uh, process, it's also going to be complicated because you have to, like policymakers will have to decide between uh, like uh, um, a shock to the economy, or, I mean, getting rid of all the interventions uh, at the same time, which is going to cause a shock, uh, or doing a gradual process one by one. If they, if they, they are going to be inclined to take the second route, but the gradual uh, step, the, the gradual step-by-step -step solutions is going to be also complicated because you are going to have winners and losers again. So again, the same political uh, problems that I was talking before. So it's also complicated. Uh, it's better to stay away for, uh, from these kind of things and, and uh, try to solve the problem with other uh, more regular tools that was the next question i actually had for you and this and it's the most loaded question i was going to ask is so augustine are you suggesting then that uh, what government should do is just nothing but it sounds like that's actually the, the better answer as opposed to you know getting involved and in, and further messing things up well if we uh, have to decide between um price controls are Nothing. I would say nothing. Obviously, uh, but the government has another uh, other 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 tools to to solve the the um, the, um, the problem with inflation. Inflation in America, I, 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 what I understand is that is I think it's created by uh, a problem with the supply. Uh, uh, you have many shortages in the economy, so the government can do, in my opinion, two things. To deregulate so that supply can, uh, you know, uh, increase uh, quickly. And also, uh, like, the, the Fed should do what they know, uh, what they do every uh, time that the inflation is high. To, like, use, the, the Fed should use the regular tools that they have. The, the tools that they have at hand are, are going to be useful to solve inflation. It's going to be High for a while, but um, I think in a in a certain period it's gonna calm down when you solve both supply and and the monetary monetary side of of, of the, the problem. I would say. 
Again, we are talking with Young Voices contributor Augustin Forzani. Um, Augustin, where can people access you either for your writings or where can they follow you on social media? Well, uh, yeah, I am active on Twitter and LinkedIn mainly. Um, my my Twitter and LinkedIn both are uh, Agustin Forsani. Uh, it's A G U S T I N Forsani F O R Z A N I. I know it's complicated for uh, English speakers. Um, and yeah, and also in the Young Voices uh, webpage. Okay, we'll have a link to your article in the show notes. Thanks again for being our guest. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me.